All right, if you have a Bible, if you can open up to the book of Isaiah. If you're new to the Bible, Isaiah is right in the, kind of in the middle, a little bit to the right. He's what's called a prophet. If you make it to Jeremiah, you've gone too far. If you make it to Song of Solomon, you haven't gone far enough. We're in Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah is a prophet of the Old Testament. But one thing we find with the Old Testament, with the New Testament, and with the whole Bible, is that the whole Bible, this book, points to and pivots around one key figure. There is one person and only one person this book centers on, And that person is not me, and that person is not you. That person is not any of us, but that person is Jesus Christ. We meet him in the pages of Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and we find as we meet him in the Scriptures that there is no one like him. In Jesus, we meet with this person, this this figure that has a paradox of characteristics that are found in no one else. We find him being infinite in majesty, but yet all-surpassing in humility. We find him as King Most High, who is also the servant of all. We find him as the mighty conqueror, who is also meek and mild. We see him as the Prince of Peace and a man of war. We see him as Lion and Lamb, Friend of Sinners an enemy of self-righteousness. We see him with unlimited strength and being drawn to the weak. And most paradoxically, we see him as both God and man. No other person, no other person brings together these seemingly contradictory elements. No other person is like Jesus the Christ. When we see Jesus, and we see him in the scriptures, and we meet Jesus, we, are call, we, we give cause to wonder, worship, and follow him. Who is like this Jesus? Today, Isaiah again directs our eyes to behold the incomparable Christ. Remember what we, we, we talked about this last week, behold means look. Isaiah is going to say the word behold twice in our passage, verses 1 through 9. And he's directing our gaze to look at Jesus Christ. We're going to behold the incomparable Christ together. I'm going to read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 42. And I'm going to read all the way down to verse 9. So if you have a Bible, follow along with me as I read. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully Bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established 
justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray. Lord, I need great huge amounts of help to preach your word faithfully this morning. But I'm always aware of my weakness as I stand here. What gives me hope each week I preach is not that I'm strong or up to the task, but you are mighty. And that you delight to use weak vessels like me to proclaim your truth. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help me and help all of us to be able to hear your voice today in your word as it is faithfully preached. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. I pray that any here who are not yet followers of you, I pray that you would get their attention, Lord, in, one, in some way or another. I pray that those of us who are followers, I pray that you would get our attention, Lord, because sometimes we wander too. It's in your mighty name, Jesus, and it's by your power that we pray. Amen. So we're going to behold the incomparable Christ here. Now our passage was written over 800 years before Jesus was born. Now Jesus in this passage is called servant. So when Isaiah writes this passage... No one knows, because it's, in, it's before he came, who the identity of this servant would be. We know that the identity of this servant is Jesus Christ. So we're going to see in two movements this morning, the servant's mission and the servant's help. The servant's mission and the servant's help. The servant's mission is found in verses 1 through 4. Now we considered these verses a bit last week, but it made sense to point out a couple things this week. Now recall that the, we, we saw in verse 3 last week the nature of the ministry that Jesus himself brings. Verse 3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Unlike the leaders of the world, they walk through grass and just crack and break everything in their way. Jesus is not like that. He moves toward those who are weak and need the most help, and he does not break those who are already bruised, nor does he, burn, does he blow out those, those that are about to flicker and go. 
But then we see this of verse 4. We read this in, in verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. Now, I'm no Hebrew scholar, but I read books by Hebrew scholars. And these scholars tell me that verse 3, when it speaks of a bruised reed, it's the same word used here when he says he will not be discouraged. Also, when we read a faintly burning wick in verse 3, it's the same word used here when Isaiah speaks of him as not growing faint. And so what does this mean? It means that those things that bruise and break us bounce right off of him. In his ministry, those things, when he was walking this world, when he was walking through this life, those things that would come to him and those things that would break us down and bruise him, he was impervious to. Those things that discourage us, that discourage us and bring us down, this servant would not be dissuaded and he would not be put off his mission. He would not be distur- discouraged. He was made of sterner stuff than we are. How different he is from us. I can tell you, and I think we all know this, that it doesn't take much to become discouraged or bruised. Life does not have to hit me that hard for me to feel it. I can be doing great one moment, and then a thought can invade my mind and make me in the next moment want to just give up. Who doesn't know that experience? I am easily bruised and discouraged, but not Jesus. He is, he is undaunted. He is undaunted. He had real enemies that were constantly plotting his end and destruction. He had Satan, the accuser, the great accuser of all Christians, perpetually coming after him. He had friends that surrounded him that did not act like friends. He had false charges leveled at him. He did not have a home, and yet he was not discouraged. He did not shrink back. He pushed forward. How different Jesus is from us. You see, you read the Gospels, and you see how different he is. An example is in Luke chapter 4. If you read the Gospel of Luke, and if you've never read it, read it, I'd encourage you to do that. But in Luke 4, if you read the whole chapter, you find that at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is driven by the Spirit out into the desert, and he is tempted by the devil himself in the desert. He survives the temptation, comes through without succumbing to the temptation, and he fasts for 40 days. That in itself is a miracle. He doesn't get discouraged. He doesn't, he doesn't turn away. But then he goes to his hometown of Nazareth. And at his hometown, this is right after the, the, the temptation, the synagogue leader invites him to preach. Now he preaches to people that he knew. His hometown was Nazareth. He had grown up with them. He was a carpenter. So he probably made the kitchen tables for a lot of the people that he was about to preach to. If it wasn't their kitchen tables, maybe he made something else. He preached in their synagogue to his friends, to his family, to people who knew him from when he was a child and watched him grow up. They watched him grow up. They listened to him preach and then listened how they responded to his sermon. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him 
down the cliff. Now, I've preached many sermons. I've preached many, many bad sermons. And I've never had a group of you say, you know, we're done. We're going to run. We're going to take our Tahoe and run it over you in the back of this. We're just done. Or take me up to the top of this building and we'll throw you off. We're just done hearing from you. But this is the response. Jesus' very first sermon was, we want to kill you. That was his response. There's no ministry afterwards. People are like, you know what the ministry is? We're going to kill you so no one else has to hear this. But passing through their midst, he went away. Now, if he was like me or you, he would be discouraged, right? If that's your first time preaching, how do you think, what do you think goes through your mind the next time it comes down? Hmm, last time everybody wanted to kill me. I wonder what's going to happen this time, but not Jesus. He did not grow faint, and he would not be discouraged. He did not stop his ministry. Why, how, was he endowed with this otherworldly kind of toughness? It's because of his mission. Look again at verse 4. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. See that word justice? We see the word justice also in verse 1 and verse 3. In verse 1, we read, He will bring forth justice to the nations. Verse 3, He will faithfully bring forth justice. Now, when Isaiah is talking about justice, he's not talking about the, the servant condemning or punishing. This servant Jesus is coming to establish justice. This means he is beginning the process of making all things in this broken world right. This servant has come to this world with the mission of establishing justice or beginning, we can say it in another way, beginning the process of turning back the curse of sin that lies heavy on mankind and heavy on this earth. He began the process of establishing justice. It doesn't take an expert or expert social scientist to see in our world that it's broken beyond repair. Injustice reigns. The injustice that dominates our world is a, an expression of the broken human relationships that are everywhere. The strong take advantage of the weak. The wealthy get their way. The marginalized are ignored. When sin entered the world, it erected a barrier between God and mankind, but also, also, between us and everyone else. Even the best societies our world can produce are broken. And so the servant, Jesus, has come to what? Establish justice in the earth. Now, that's a big job. It's not just that he's going to establish justice in Rhode Island, like some small little, you know, let me just get the smallest state, and, and it's really small. Let's push everybody out that's bad, and let's establish justice there. That's not what he's doing. It's not as if he's just going to establish justice in one small corner of the world. He is going to establish justice, what does it say, in the earth. 
Now, how? How is he going to do that? Well, with help. And we move from his mission to his help in verses 5 through 9. In verses 5 through 9, we have something very rare in Scripture. Here, we're able to overhear the Lord or the Father speaking to the Son. And we're going to witness his pledge of support to the Son. Now, before he does that, in verse 6, we have in verse 5, the Lord reminding us who he is. Verse 5 says, Thus says God the Lord, who created heavens and who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people in it and spirit to those who walk in it. The Lord uses language like we've heard before. We've been going from Isaiah 40 until now, and we've seen the Lord use this kind of language to remind us that He is the Creator God who made all things and is responsible for all things and can do what He wants on this earth. This is to show He has authority to address creation's curse. He has authority because He is the Creator of all things, and He is announcing something to all of creation by speaking to His servant. He says this in verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. When we read that the servant is called in righteousness, Ray Ortland says that means the very reputation of God stands or falls with the success of Jesus. So Jesus is going to perfectly represent the righteous purposes of God. That's what this servant does. Remember what we've been seeing through Isaiah chapter 40 and following. We've seen that the world and Israel have constantly wandered off to follow idols. They have wandered off and followed false gods, gods of their own making, gods of that, that, that were reminiscent and, and looked like the, the, the countries around them. But yet the Lord continues to protect and keep them. See, it's no wonder that this servant is not easily bruised or discouraged. The Lord takes him by the hand and keeps him. He protects him through all of his earthly ministry. The Lord is the servant's helper. And if you read the Gospels, you look back and see all the different times Jesus is praying to his Father. Jesus goes off into the secret places to pray, for his, pray to his Father. Jesus spends, right before he gets arrested, he spends hours toiling in prayer before his Father. That's the, the way that the Lord took him by his hand. And where did he take him? Look at the second half of verse 6. And this is the key phrase. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Now that word covenant is something, it's a word we're not used to, and it's a word we do not use. But notice, the servant is coming, the servant will come as a covenant for the people. Now, a covenant is an agreement. It's like a contract between two parties, but far more serious. 
When we make an agreement with someone, we draw up a contract or have lawyers draw up a contract and then sign on the dotted line. We promise to pay this, and in return we get this. And if we stop paying, we have to give back our car or our house or whatever we decide we want to finance. This is not the way it works with the covenant. A covenant is an agreement far more formal and serious. The parties formalize their agreement by taking a set of animals and cutting them, killing them and cutting them in half and laying the animals, laying the different parts of the animals side by side in a path. The two parties would walk through that path, this macabre path of animal parts on each side of them. And as they walked through these dismembered carcasses together, it was their way of saying, if I break this covenant with you, if I break my agreement with you, may I be like this dead ox right here, cut in half. Now, I can guarantee when you bought your car, that is not how the loan officer spoke to you. But here, when we read the word covenant, that's what that's all about. Your word was literally your life. The Lord had made a covenant with the people of Israel, but yet they broke it and ran away to idols. And yet the Lord did not utterly destroy them. They deserved to be destroyed like the oxen like the animals cut in half. And they knew this. But the Lord was kind and patient and did not utterly destroy them. Instead of destruction, he sent them off into exile. Now the nation perpetually failed to keep the terms of the covenant. They wandered away and worshipped other gods and had, had they turned away from the Most High God. Now, it's fascinating. If you read through Isaiah, you'll notice that Israel is called the servant of the Lord a number of times. Here's a couple of examples. Isaiah 41.8 says this, But you, Israel, my servant. Isaiah 45.4 says, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. But it turns out that Israel was not a very good servant of the Lord because they turned away. The Lord had given them life. The Lord had delivered them from Egyptian bondage. He had called them in righteousness. He had taken them by the hand from the marauding Egyptians through the Red Sea. And yet, they turned to idols again and again and again. And the Lord was kind and patient and merciful and gracious. And yet, they ran from Him and served other idols. They should have been destroyed because that was the agreement. And here hidden in the bowels of the Old Testament is a glittering gem of grace when we read this. I will give you as a covenant for the people. I will give you. Not I will require of them. So how it should have gone is this. Those people, it should, their lives should have been required of them because they had broken the covenant. <laughs> they had turned their back on God, on God. They had looked away from Him. They had worshipped false gods. They had, their lives should have been required of them. But instead, the Lord in His mercy sends a servant and says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. Now what people? 
just the Jews? What does he say? I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. The nations. That means that Jesus, the servant, offered himself for all. For the nations. Sometimes that word nations is translated Gentiles. And it means that this servant would perpetually embody this agreement, this covenant. He would forever be at the center of the relationship between the Lord and his people. And so today, when we talk about being fixed on Jesus, that's not just something we pull out of thin air. This is something we got in the Bible. We see this in verse 6 saying, I will give you as a covenant for the people. The reason our lives have not been required of us is because the life of Christ was given in place of us. Jesus was given as a covenant for all the people. This is what John the Baptist is getting at when he says, Behold, after he saw Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How did the covenant, how was Jesus' life required? Did, what happened to him? Well, he died. He was hung up on a cross. His death on the cross was not just a tragedy. That was the way. That was the way that verse 6, the second half of verse 6 was fulfilled. When the Lord says, I will give you as a covenant for the people. How was it fulfilled? When Jesus died on a cross. Later in Isaiah, we read this, and this is a description of how Jesus was given as a covenant. Isaiah 53 says this, But he, this is the servant, this is Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. I mean sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin, of us all. That's how the covenant was fulfilled. Jesus stepped forward as a representative of mankind. Stepped forward and offered himself freely as a sin substitute. The servant of the Lord is helped by the Lord on his mission to die in the place of sinners. This servant this is the servant that the Lord says in verse 1, I'll uphold you. How long does he uphold him? Until he gets to the cross. This servant, the Lord says, who's my chosen one? And whom my soul delights? How long does his soul delight in him? Until he gets to the cross. This servant preserved so that he might bring forth justice to the nations by dying on a cross. 
This Jesus, who does not grow faint and would not be discouraged, was crushed to establish justice on earth. He walked through life with all the things that would, pop, would knock us over and blow us down. And he, he went all the way to his appointment with the cross. And there, as the Lord kept him and called him in righteousness, he was crushed. He gave him as a covenant for the people. A light for the nations. That means for us. He gave him for us. See, Isaiah might, receive, might seem remote <clears throat> and distant and not have a lot of application to your life. But when you see the words like nations here in verse 6 and blind and prisoners in, in verses 7 and following... That is the Bible speaking of you. All of us, in our natural state, are blind. We're blinded by sin. All of us, in our natural state, are imprisoned by the power of sin. All of us are hopelessly lost. Because we have broken the agreement with God as well. And our lives are required. Our lives are required in payment for our sin. Except. Except. We have this hope. I will give you as a covenant for the people. He does not require you or me to be the means of a covenant. He does not require our lives. Instead, we can do what, the, what, what Isaiah directs us to do. Look at verse 1 of 42. Behold, Look at verse 9 of 42. Behold. What does behold mean? Behold means to look. What are we to do? We are to look at the servant who has died so that we might live. We are to look and see that he is the one who has opened our blinded eyes. Our eyes as Christians that were once dimmed by sin, we now have the light of the message of Jesus Christ and now we can see. We have sight. The servant also has, what does it say? Brings out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. See, those that are trapped in the prison of sin are released. Apart from Jesus, there is no escape from the awful power of sin. Sin is a power that imprisons you, that traps you, and there is no escape on your own. But Jesus died to set us, the captives, free. How do you know? How do you know that he died for you? If you have put your faith in him, He has freed you from the ravages of the power of sin. Behold, 
the incomparable Christ. Look at him. Look at what he's done. See, each week when we gather, we gather to look at Jesus. Each week. Each week, because as we said at the beginning, the Bible is about, points to, and pivots around the person and the work of Jesus. And if you read in the, in the New Testament, in Revelation chapter 5, you're not gonna, there's not going to be something that we're going to be occupied with in heaven beyond Jesus Christ. Read in Revelation 5, we find that heaven is preoccupied with the person and work of Jesus Christ. We will continue to behold the person and work of Jesus Christ in this life and in the life to come for all eternity, and we will never get to the spot to where we understand completely all of who he is. We will always see him and wonder, why? What happened? That's amazing. This servant served us in ways no one else could. So have you trusted Jesus? Now maybe all this Jesus talk is new for you. Thank you for coming. I know it's odd maybe for some of you to be in a church. If you have questions, ask them. We, we, here, we, we don't encourage people to take a leap of blind faith. What we want people to do is ask their questions, ask their questions. We believe that a faith, the faith, faith is informed by what we learn about in the Scriptures. We're eager to tell you about how Jesus has changed our lives forever. All of us who are Christians, if you're not a Christian, what you need to understand is we're just like you. We're not better. We're not smarter. We're not more accomplished. We're just forgiven. It could be that Jesus is drawing you right now. Usually you can tell if Jesus is drawing you if you have a sense inside that something is not right. Maybe you feel like something's missing. Maybe you're bothered by the things you do wrong and you don't know why. That's called conviction of sin. Sin is what the prob- is the problem with everything that's wrong in the world. And Jesus came to die for sinners. Friend, you cannot save yourself. You are right now, if you're not following Jesus, you're blind and you're trapped. You are subject to the power of sin and only Jesus can release you from it. He's done all the work. He's already lived a perfect life that you could not live. And he died as a substitute for your sins and rose from the dead. You don't need a ceremony. You just need to turn to him, confess your sin, and trust him for salvation. And behold, the incomparable Christ. Because he is. He is. He has been given as a covenant for you. Behold, look at him. Maybe look at him for the first time. If you have questions about what it looks like to follow Jesus, talk to somebody who you came with. Talk to a person that you know is a Christian. If you don't know any Christians, I will be up here at the end along with some other leaders. We'd love to be able to talk with you. Christians, if you are following Jesus, look at verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass. And new things I now declare. 
before they spring forth, I tell you of them. See, we serve a God who describes what has happened and why, and what is to come and why. Our God knows the end from the beginning. The one who created time holds us in his hands. We're not going to be able to understand all the whys and wherefores of life, but we can entrust ourselves to him because he is trustworthy. Behold his servant. Behold his servant. May we not hold our ba- ourselves back from Jesus in, one, in, any, in any shape or form. There is no one like our Jesus. He is strong, but comes running to the weak. He is mighty, but binds up the broken. He is perfect, yet dies in our place. He is holy, and yet forgives our every sin. Friends, Christians, behold, behold again your incomparable Christ. See, he's not just the focus of the Bible. He's meant to be the focus of all of our lives. Is there something else that we're beholding in our lives? Something else that we consider of greater importance? Something else that has distracted us? Something else that we're beholding on a regular, daily basis. Maybe it's an anxiety. Maybe it's a fear. Maybe it's a concern. Maybe it's troubles. Maybe it's hardships. Maybe it's sin that you've come to terms with. And you're fixated on that. And you're distracted. Friends, behold. Do what Isaiah says. Behold the servant. Behold, look and see. Look at what he's done. He who took Jesus by the hand will take you by the hand and preserve you and protect you and keep you. We have no reason, friends, we have no reason to hold ourselves back from the one who has given himself completely for us. Behold, behold, behold the incomparable Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help all of us here in this room. Lord, it's so easy to get distracted and to forget what's important. It's so easy to become be held hostage to our feelings and our intuitions and our fears and our concerns. It's so easy to to have all kinds of hardships come to our lives and, and distract us, Lord. And I pray that you would help us just to be able to behold you, Jesus. Let us look to you and see what you have done for us. When you boil everything down about our lives, the most important thing about all of us here is you, Jesus. Apart from you, we have nothing. Apart from you, we have no hope. Apart from you, we should be very afraid. But Lord, you are on our side. You are the servant of the Lord and you have given yourself so that we might have life and have this life eternally. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to look to you. May we behold you more and more through the pages of Scripture. May we 
with your help and with your strength, turn our eyes away from those things that cloud our vision, those things that distract, those things that make us to where we don't know which end is up. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a people that fix ourselves upon you. Because you are our only hope. We have nothing if we do not have you. Jesus, thank you for not being put off or dissuaded or discouraged in your march toward the cross. Thank you for not getting put off track, but yet you set your face to the cross so that I might today and we might all today be able to have the hope and the hope and the reassurance that our sins are forever put away and that there is no wrath remaining for us and there is no punishment left for us. I pray that we would be a people to become more and more expert at beholding you. I pray also for those, any here who are not followers of you, Lord, I pray that you would, I pray you would just give them a question that they can't shake. Give them, just help them to wonder about you and ask their Christian friends and search the scriptures and meet you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done for us. And it's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen.